0: The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, and who the fuck
1: can blame us, the world is utterly, utterly fucked.
2: Day, the 21st of september 2017 do you think this statement from 1980 is still true today the bomb isn't likely to drop certainly not in the near future no i didn't think so also on the pod two americans relate what could well be one of my dreams we put a we put a nuclear weapon on a missile on a submarine and we fired it and nicholas fryer presents another of his modest proposals
1: God, it feels good to speak freely at last, to say what we've all thought at one time or another. This is
2: the 9pm end of the world, but more so. <laughs> This episode of The Edict is dedicated to the memory of Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov of the Soviet Union. I'll explain why in a moment. But let me first tell you briefly about an Adelaide band called The Mark of Cain, or sometimes t They make music that sounds like this... Uh, You get the idea. Well, that uh, is actually from, when is that from? That's from 1993. Uh, It's uh, a CD. uh, You'll have to explain to your kids what a CD is uh, called Incoming, and that's uh, the first track called Cripple. Uh, And for those of you who care about such things, that, that is an awesome Awesome CD, some great songs on it. And it was produced by a chap called Steve Albini. Some of you musical types may have heard of him. Did some good stuff. So that's the mark of Kane. Um, I I must admit I had a a lovely time listening to them in the back bar of the Austral Hotel in Adelaide. Very nasty, very sweaty, uh, very loud given... It's such a tiny space. And I also uh, had the pleasure of listening to the Mark of Cain in the Punter's Club in Melbourne, which is an excellent live music venue, or at least it was. I haven't been there in... Well, since the the 1990s. Uh, but the night I was there, uh, I was listening to The Mark of Kane as the guest of Sharon Ashworth, who at the time was uh, the marketing manager for Shock Records, and at the time they were the largest independent music distributor in Australia. I th- I've never quite known what independent means, independent of what, and I think they just, mean, they just mean independent of the large labels. So then you get the independent labels. Of course, they grow. And then you get other labels to say, no, we're independent. Anyway, that was Shock Records then. And Sharon Ashworth was buying uh, my drinks and for those with us. And I noticed she was only drinking mineral water. And I thought, that's odd. Here we are listening to the Mark of Cain. And uh, this is why are you just drinking mineral water? And she said, um, I used to be Nick Cave's tour manager. Yeah, I thought that probably uh, answers that question. But. I, I, that's a digression. What I really wanted to say is, at the beginning of uh, the Mark of Cain's incoming CD, there is a little audiogram, and it's the radio, the radio traffic from an incident from the war in Iraq. Uh, obviously, just a, a short time before the CD was released, the voices you're about to hear. Are American pilots and their mission controllers. Yeah, those are enemies. You go ahead and take them out. I uh, can shoot those easy,
3: right? Oh, they all look like they're doing a damn thing. Go ahead and take them out. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's hard to pull this
4: trigger. Uh, I hope it's enemy. Go That's through. all right. Just stay on.
3: Them. Here it comes. I, I guess you could say that. Hit it. I'm go ahead and shoot the second vehicle. Uh, it's still intact, but it's fixing to go away. Are you are ready in the back. Let's do them. This bud's for you. Uh-oh. That's all right. He's dead, too. Hoo-wee, <laughs> did we hit those targets? Oh, it's reporting that it to maybe friendly vehicles may have been hit over. Oh, Don't say that. Roger, I was afraid of that. I was really afraid of that. Ceasefire. 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 fire. Hope it's not friendly. So I just blew up because they're all dead.
2: As it happens, they weren't all dead. The uh, the friendlies turned out to be a couple of British Army armoured vehicles. That's only part of the the entire audio sequence. I have heard the whole thing. You can find it on the intertubes. There's a sequence beforehand where the American controllers are in contact with uh, a British controller in a Royal Air Force plane as they're circling around, and they lose contact with the british plane so you just heard what happens there's a bit uh, that's missing from that audio which is where one of the pilots says something along the lines of are you sure they're not friendlies i see orange isn't today orange and that's a color-coded thing that friendly vehicles that were racing all the way ahead of the main front would stretch over the the top of the vehicle a coloured flag. Today's colour was orange in that case. And one of the pilots thought he saw orange and he's actually overruled by the controller and they're given clearance to fire. And that's where you hear the audio picking up from just there. What you hear afterwards, uh, and I'm not sure whether there's an edit point or afterwards that, uh, that thing happens you you hear communication reestablished with the british controller and in this clipped british accent you hear something like dragon 5 dragon 5 cease fire cease fire and and then there's about 2 minutes of pilots just flying around realizing what's happened what isn't uh as well known is that uh, some of the the crew of those two british armored vehicles did did survive. And in interviews have said they do not blame the American pilots. The American pilots did what they were meant to do. They checked, they were told, they were clear to fire, and they did. Now, the reason I mention all that is that I want to point out how what happens in a war isn't as neat and clean as as the politicians would like to believe it's not all under control uh someone once said that you know no plan survives contact with the enemy and it's true uh you you can plan as much as you like Uh, But then once you've pressed the start button, it's down to the individual soldiers and their sergeants on the ground, it's down to individual pilots, it's down to individual captains of ships and their sailors making the decisions on the ground or on the water using the information that's in front of them, the information they've been provided, and that's not always accurate. Let's wind back a bit. Here is uh, a, a piece from the BBC current affairs program Panorama from 1980. The episode was called If the Bomb Drops, and it's presented by a significantly
3: younger Jeremy Paxton. Good evening. The bomb isn't likely to drop, certainly not in the near future. Although the Russian invasion of Afghanistan has heightened tension between East and West, Few believe that a nuclear war is imminent. But what the Afghan crisis has made us do is examine what preparations have been made to enable you and me, as opposed to government, to survive a nuclear attack. Britain's Civil Defence Corps was disbanded in 1968, and since then most people seem to have wanted to avoid the subject altogether. They think either that there'll be no nuclear war, or that no one will survive it. Both assumptions are questionable. In this film, we've attempted to find out how many could survive a nuclear attack, what life would be like after such a catastrophe, and what's being done to help us survive. You may find some of this film disturbing, but as long as we remain a likely target for attack, we must think about the unthinkable, if the bomb drops.
1: After a nuclear war, the whole of Europe could become a vast uninhabitable desert. No industrial society, nothing that we would recognize as government, would survive. There would be a state of total anarchy, with all those who remained alive prey to bands of savage marauders with disease rampant and violent death commonplace. In an all-out nuclear war, to use the word survival is idiotic.
2: Cheery chap, isn't he? That uh, episode of Panorama, as I say, was from 1980. Now, the 1980s, the first half of the 1980s, was the closest we've been to nuclear war since uh, the Bay of Pigs in the early 1960s and uh, along with that, uh, the disastrous attempt by the United States to to invade Cuba, and then the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, where the Soviet Union did put nuclear-armed missiles in Cuba, obviously very close to the United States. And in that messy environment of 1962, was it? Early 60s, anyway, that's a very close point in, uh, in trying to avoid nuclear war. And the other one... Was the early part of the 1980s. Now, if you want to understand uh, the 1980s and the political landscape of the time, you really do need to understand Exercise Able Archer 83. Uh, well, and of course, Banana Armor, but that's outside the scope of this program this uh, this evening. Um, Able Archer 83. Bit of context. There was heightened tensions, as uh, Paxman said, of, of, about Afghanistan and so on. Uh, there were increasingly r- accurate and realistic military exercises on uh, on both the Soviet Union side and on the NATO slash American side. Uh, tensions were high. Now, I'm about to tell this story and I I may have some of the sequencing wrong because a lot of stuff happened in very in a very compressed timeline. Able Archer was an exercise where the NATO forces including the United States tried to make, uh, make things as realistic as possible to see how they would cope with the communications process if a real nuclear war broke out. So the exercise actually involved putting ships out at sea where they would be during a nuclear war, uh, aircraft flying around, coded messages being sent, and indeed the national leaders and military leaders themselves practising sending the coded attack orders. Now, while this was all happening, the Soviet Union happened to be paranoid about the idea of an American first strike. Now, whether the Americans ever planned that, is is highly doubtful. There's certainly in the 1950s and 60s there were some hawks in the American military establishment who wanted to, you know, nuke those goddamn commies. But by the 1980s, the the, the idea that the Americans would would start a first strike was not likely, and yet uh, the Soviet Union was worried about it, so they assigned agents to look out for signs of uh, a surprise attack and of course when you're looking for every little paranoid sign uh, I mean you'll find them. I've, I've got the words wrong in that explanation but you understand what I'm saying. You look for subtle clues you will find subtle clues. Now that was one of the events and as I say I don't know the exact order of these because I ran out of time looking them up this evening. Another incident because of this heightened alert state, is that when uh, an American intelligence aircraft and Korean Airlines Flight 007 were kind of in the same-ish area at the same time, there was confusion and the Soviet military shot down the Korean airliner uh, along with all of the people on it. So there was that tension. Um, And there were other things too. So in this kind of atmosphere lieutenant colonel stanislav petrov was on duty at the oco nuclear early warning center oh sorry the the nuclear warning center and one of the feeds into that was the new oco nuclear early warning system which involved satellites and other such thing he was the officer on duty the system reported that a missile had been launched from the united states followed by five more. That is to say, the Soviets saw that there were inbound nukes. Now, exactly what happened at that point and exactly what Petrov's role is is has kind of not fully been established. But Petrov decided that the strike... That or this evidence of a strike was a false alarm, so he did not trigger the communications that would have gone back to the Kremlin and led to a nuclear response. His reasoning included the views that the the new OCO system was not yet wholly trustworthy, and other systems were not indicating uh, an attack. Um. But also that five missiles? I mean, if the United States was launching a surprise strike to, to wipe out the Soviet Union, it wouldn't be five missiles, it would be hundreds. And that was that was reasonably logical. So in many ways Stanislav Petrov is, is someone who prevented, by his individual action, a nuclear war. The reason I mention this today is that we've only had news in the last couple of days that he died recently aged 77 he was he actually died on the 19th of may this year but uh, it's only in the last few days that the news uh, has come out he he just died a quiet 77 year old man in in his local town in russia so that's that's something i i wanted to say um, to point out again, as I say, the, these decisions come down uh, to absolute individuals and their choices. Uh, and so when you then only a year later, on the 11th of August in 1984, you have the President of the United States doing a microphone test as a joke.
4: I am Americans. I'm pleased to tell you today that I've
2: signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever We begin <laughs> bombing in five minutes. You can imagine that at the uh, Moscow Control Centre at that point. Many, many chaps were reaching over their desks and flipping the safety covers off their red buttons. Nice little joke, Ronnie Reagan. He, he says he didn't realise that the microphone was live. Yeah, a man who spent his entire career as a movie star act <laughs> doesn't know when uh, the microphone is live. So let's fast forward to 2017 and we have the uh, Democratic uh, People's Republic of Korea testing not only uh, ballistic missiles, but hydrogen bombs, thermonuclear devices. Now, we've seen... In recent weeks, and I know I talked about this in the last episode of this podcast, but we've seen in recent weeks the the North Koreans really just slamming through a lot of tests here, and uh, it's important to note, for example, that the last missile test uh, of one of their longer range devices was not really a test it was really a drill it wasn't from a test bed it's from what was called it is called a tel a, T-E-L, a transporter erector launcher that is you know this they're, the, they're the kind of multi-wheeled vehicles you see in all of the the russian and north korean military parades they've got a missile on the back they've got about eight or ten wheels 12 wheels i don't know you count them and the idea is you drive that to where you're going to launch you that's the transporter part you erect the missile to a vertical position, the erector part, and guess what the launcher does now. The thing is if you're testing the missile, you don't use a tell because if the missile blows up on the pad, it blows up the tell and they're they're not cheap you don't want to blow away equipment you You set the missile up on a test stand and clear the fuck out of there. Not with this. They put it on a tell and and Kim Jong-un is watching it from a, quote, safe, unquote, distance. They're pretty bloody happy with their missiles. They're also pretty bloody happy with their H-bombs. They seem to be, you know, let off a couple there. So I was... Listening, as I do, to the Arms Control Wonk podcast, and uh, you really should listen to that if you want to understand things about uh, North Korea... Uh, Well, about arms control generally, but they've been concentrating on North Korea, obviously, a fair bit lately. Uh, And in the episode, North Korea Tests an H-Bomb, from uh, earlier in September, earlier this month, here's how the presenters thought they would deal with things if they were in charge.
1: I'm worried that they're gonna mount a mi- a warhead on top of a missile and fire it.
2: Yes,
0: Japan. I am I mean, too. Well, over it sort Japan. of just all
1: clicked as I was looking at you know that fly along map, you know where yes. you are in the world, and I was like, yes. I was like, holy, holy shit!
0: I was yes, like, that's what I would do.
1: Right? That's, I, that's know, like, my joke is Juche Bird
0: because we did it. We put a we put a nuclear weapon on a missile on a submarine and we fired it. And the Chinese in 1966, after with their fourth test, after we kept telling them like, oh, well, we, you may have a nuclear device, but it's not small enough for a missile. You know, the Chinese were like, oh, oh, really? <laughs> so here, they put a live nuclear weapon on a live missile and fired it across their country. Yeah, I'm more they're gonna fire it out to sea over Japan. That's exactly what I would do. And you know, every time I mention this to Americans, they're like, well, we would, you know, and like what? Start a nuclear war? You would start a nuclear war over some dead fish? We couldn't do anything about it. Couldn't I mean, do a thing.
1: What would you do. Couldn't do, do
0: a thing. Nikki Haley could give a really impassioned, angry speech about how the North Koreans
2: are asking for it uh, before we decide to sanction some more iPads. Like, come on. <laughs> come on. But let's remember who is the President of the United States right now. <laughs> Hello, I'm still Gary, and welcome to the Edict. It's quite a while since we had uh, one of these podcasts, isn't it? More than three months. Uh, uh, Shall I tell you why? Do you want to hear about my personal problems? If you're listening to this live and on the Twitter stream, uh, just say the hashtag's 9pm live. And uh, if you want to uh, hear about my personal whinging... Uh, in the podcast, a bit later, uh, just let me know on the twitters. Nine PM live is the hashtag. That's the letter nine, number nine, number. Oh, what are the, the the letters you use for numbers? Um, do that. oh dear, we're off to a fucking good start here, aren't we? Okay. Anyway, it's been a while. I mean. The things I spoke about in the last episode of this podcast, would you believe, fefe Harold the Giraffe and gay marriage in Australia, which is still an issue nearly four months. June, July, September. Yes, nearly four months later and it's going on for fucking ever. I don't want to say too much about this because the uh, the referendum, no plebiscite, no survey that the government is running to see whether a same-sex couple should be allowed to marry or not is saturating, well, the kind of media coverage that you and I look at. I mean, the sort of people who don't... They, ...stay across this shit, probably aren't listening to this podcast... (laughs) ...so I can say anything I fucking like about you, can't I, you stupid, bigoted cunts? And the last episode included uh, a big slab, rather far too much of uh, it... ...I now realise in hindsight of Margaret Court, a former Australian tennis star... ...who's now a senile, evangelistic Christian pastor... It's the senile and evangelistic and dipshit part of that that's the problem. If she was actually teaching the teachings of that Jesus bloke, I'd be happy, not this strange, I did all that last time. What I find interesting about this debate, in as much as it is, is how the no-voters have been silenced. You don't have the freedom of speech to defend yourself, said Margaret Court in one media report which reported her saying that she doesn't have freedom of speech. I'm loving how the silenced ones can be heard on on every radio and TV station and how news outlets actually send journalists to report their words – but apparently they're silenced. Lars Shelton of the Australian Christian Lobby is the most silenced of all. He, he must be exhausted by now. Imagine how totally naked he'd be if he wasn't being silenced. BuzzFeed, who I must remind you, is an awesomely good news outlet... Uh, The new Australian news editor, Josh Taylor, ex-crikey, ex-ZDNet and all-round good chap, actually got someone to do the numbers. The no side has had four times the media space than the yes side in this same-sex marriage, quote, debate, unquote. And yet they're silenced. (sighs) one day uh just recently the uh libs was it libs for same sex marriage libs for yes whatever 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 the conservative side of government because it 's all on their personal votes they they took out money to advertise their support of the yes side had a full page advertisement in the Australian, which is an allegedly broadsheet national newspaper i mean it is you know what i mean it's a murdoch thing and uh a few people, myself included, wondered whether this entire same-sex marriage debacle is part of a, a Malcolm Turnbull-Rupert Murdoch deal to lift the Australian's advertising revenue. And then I thought about that for a while. of thought, no, 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 Malcolm Turnbull could never engineer something that Machiavellian. He could barely work up a macchiato. No, uh, as Garth Kidd, a friend of mine said on Twitter... Turnbull and uh, oh, I need to explain the context of this, don't I? The former Prime Minister Tony Abbott is is really trying not just to prevent the advance of human civilization at all, but kick Turnbull out so he can do better preventage of, of advancement. God, can you imagine if Tony Abbott were about at the time that the tetrapods were crawling out of the ocean? <laughs> It'd be hilarious, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with the water. There's nothing wrong with you'll you'll die out there. You'll die. If you go out there on the land our children will become lesbians. Oh god, I'm glad I'm I hope people can't hear me shouting this out in the forest. Uh <laughs> so Former Prime Minister Abbott, who is continuing his sniping, not sniping campaign from the timeline, those sidelines, Turnbull making political decisions solely so that he can maintain his position. Um, Garth Kidd suggested that Turnbull and Abbott both threatening to bring down the government is like a game of chicken, but they both threw the steering wheel out of the car. I don't think that's quite true i think they threw the steering wheel into the back seat where great grandfather is fighting his dementia and arthritis trying to reach the dropped steering wheel down between his legs in amongst the chip wrappers as we go closer and closer to the cliff cartoonist john cadelka really uh, had a pat Back in January this year when he said the thing with Malcolm is even though you know he's going to be disappointing, he still manages to disappoint, which is quite something. Also quite something is some of the campaigning not just on uh, same-sex marriage, uh, but on the kind of fighting the Nazis in the United States and let's be Real, there are actual Nazis in the United States and elsewhere, but America's always had a bit of a fondness for the swastika and flags and marching around and shit. Stonewall UK, the uh, gay rights organisation, had a, a statement the other day condemning violence. They said, quote, There is no place for violence in our movement as a form of attack or retaliation. There is no resolution that will be achieved through violence or language inciting violence. Dehumanising discussion and actions hurt us all, divide us and stokes that division. Stonewall has always achieved change through consensus building. We will find a way to that consensus, but it is clear that the current toxic discussion and now violence is not the way. You fuckwits! Your organisation, Stonewall, is named after a riot when the police cracked down on on homosexuals in New York at that club and drag queens and transgendered women of colour started throwing bricks at the police. That's how you get changed. Now put this in the context of what else is happening in the United States. A firefighter, oh, I haven't written down what state he was in, it doesn't really matter, but he was saving a dog from a fire and said something like saving one dog is more important than a million black people. Class act, isn't it? Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, that is what is happening in the world. And though... I'm pausing. Uh, dear friends at ASIO, I am not advocating political and violence. I'm not advocating political violence at this point. But sometimes in the world, things do get to the point where discussion and consensus building is no longer sufficient is that advocating violence no i don't i don't think we're quite at that point yet but jesus christ we must be getting fucking close <laughs> All right, the people on Twitter have said they want to uh, hear why there hasn't been a podcast for three months. Okay, I'll pour some wine for this. I've also uh, had some requests uh, to identify the wine. The problem is if I do identify the wine, then Richard Churgan will know that I stole it from him. It is a per diem, as in the Latin for daily, 2017 Tempranillo from, who even are these people? Hunter Valley, I think. Yeah, the Per DM Winery, uh, 27 Tempranillo. Fucking marvelous. So, as you probably know, uh, do I really want to do this? Yeah, okay, through the winter. Uh, One got that nasty man flu that's doing the rounds in Sydney and the Blue Mountains, the one that fucks you up and then doesn't go away and then does go away and doesn't go away and comes back and whatever. Um, some think that's just a whole series of nasties. Others have the theory that it is flu because uh, New South Wales is having one of its worst flu years in years, but the people who've had the flu vaccination are getting kind of like a mild version of it that doesn't really quite go away. Doesn't, doesn't really matter what the cause is. I've had that. Secondly, in my, uh, battles, uh, with the black dog, we have been, uh, dissatisfied with progress, shall we say. I've certainly have been and my my medical team thinks we can probably get things uh, happening a bit better here. Um but uh I could not get an appointment to see uh the specialist uh who had been doing the senior diagnostician stuff uh for a while because he went on holidays and there was it was booked out. So we're still playing a little around a little bit around with that. Uh, and dentistry, dentistry is a fun thing. Um, you kids who grew up in an area where you have fluoride in the water and all this modern healthcare shit, you don't you don't have as many problems with this. But uh, I I had neglected to see the dentist for a little while, and the poor little possum looked at me with his big brown puppy dog eyes, and eyes. It's not an anger thing. He's just he's just disappointed in you um but after a, uh, a, a filling fractured and fell uh, I obviously had to go in and uh, found uh that there's six more fillings and a couple of other bits to do and I have things so I have been stressed out to buggery really really quite stressed um and uh it's it's really quite hard to To do everything all at once. So, yeah, the podcast slipped a bit. Uh, I did, in the previous episode, talk about some of the future plans, including kind of longer-form interviews about interesting topics. That will still happen, and uh, I'll come back to that. But uh, if you would like to um, contribute to this podcast happening more often... Uh, Have I told you enough about the boring things? Yes, I have. Uh, If you would like to contribute to this podcast happening more frequently, do remember, you do know that it is a listener-supported podcast. So um, you can contribute. If you want to go to stillgerian.com slash tip uh, you can throw some money into the pot. We take credit cards. We take PayPal. Uh, if you don't like the podcast, that's fine. Fuck off. You don't have to listen to it. I'm not tying you down and force feeding it into your ears, despite the obvious attraction of that scenario. Um, but you know, you could just support my shit posting on Twitter or my teeth. I should do. Actually, I was going to think of a. I was going to do a possible campaign called the Toothocalypse. Um, and, you know, what, what could I give away? I know, autographed, autographed copies of pictures of my teeth. I might, I might do that. But for right now, just chuck something in the pot, com slash tip, and I will do that. Um, oh, fuck. I forgot to go through the list to see, uh, who I need to thank for contributing since the last podcast. Uh, I will do that now while you're listening to Nicholas Fryer
1: having a look through
2: the arch window.
1: The truth the squeamish left in this country are unprepared to face is that there are those amongst us who simply don't share our values, who live in Australia but who are not truly of Australia, who have alien ways and who conspire amongst themselves to impose those ways on the rest of us. They're an enemy within, and I say it's time we found a final solution to the Queensland problem. God, it feels good to speak freely at last, to say what we've all thought at one time or another, that Queenslanders are a species of mutant, garbage-eating rat fungus, narrow-minded, provincial, slope forwarded health risks who thought the Gold Coast was a good idea. With the style and sophistication of Northern Territorians mixed with the modesty and self-awareness of the New South Welsh, their ambulatory skid marks on the underpants of society, and it's long past time we got out the bleach. There wouldn't be a problem if they stayed on the reservation, but they don't. The same people who elected Jerby Elke-Peterson Premier for 150 straight years, a people whose principal art form is police corruption, Keep sending to Canberra, the parliamentary equivalent of your horrible uncle who ruins Christmas by banging on and on about Cathy Freeman. Not just racist, but the sort of racist obsessed with shit that the rest of us can barely remember. Let's consider their current contribution, shall we? Peter Dutton, Pauline Hanson, George Christensen, Malcolm Roberts, George Brandis. It's like Spinal Tap, but for political coprophages. Parliament would be more intelligent and less likely to give everyone the shits if you replaced the lot of them with fire extinguishers full of cholera. I looked up the Labour mob too, and I'd never heard of any of them, so they're clearly about as indispensable as herpes as well. The one exception was Wayne Swan, and isn't it heartwarming that after all these years, Wayno still believes that the nation has something to contribute to himself? Now what is to be done? I don't mean to get the wrong idea. I'm no fanatic and I'm not advocating extreme measures. There are moderate Queenslanders, probably, and they should be afforded a chance to come out with their hands up. They might be allowed to stay, if they're properly vetted for loyalty, perhaps lightly sterilised. As for the rest of them? Well, I know I'm not the only person to have noticed the similarities between Queensland and another historically problematic region in a different country. Humid, agricultural and regressive. With its history of blackbirding South Sea Islanders, Queensland is also a bona fide former slave state. And I was reading an article about the fear felt by Southern slave owners that the election of Abraham Lincoln meant the end of their way of life, a concern that led directly to the calls for secession and the American Civil War. And I thought, bingo. I mean, how much better would it be if far north Alabama just went away? So I set about thinking up ways to ramp up fear amongst the Queensland population. Now, the list of things that Queenslanders are frightened of is longer than the Jurassic, and it includes change, big words, and, if I understood correctly the last one I spoke to, la la la, I can't hear you, drop dead, you commie faggot. So there's plenty to choose from. Accordingly, here is my legislative programme. If elected, the first thing I'll do is change the official name of the country To the Socialist Sharia Republic of Australia. Now, mind, I'm not advocating any change to the country's economy, legal, or constitutional systems. According to our modelling here at the Friar Institute for Statistical Verisimilitude, the name change alone should be enough to cause every other one nation voter just to walk into the sea. Next, we announce that homosexuality will henceforth be compulsory. Now, I realise that might risk a bit of a backlash in other quarters, but trust me, it'll be worth a minor change to your domestic arrangements just to see the look on Peter Dutton's face when we tell him that Clive Palmer's moving in and he's bringing the big bottle of lube. Next, we declare that all bananas and pineapples have to be halal certified, and we send an army of hijabis and beardies of obviously Middle Eastern origin to go and put a little sticker on every single one, right on the tree, while wearing big bright official tabards emblazoned with the new name of the country and the slogan, love it or leave it. Obviously, these brave patriots will be running a bit of a risk, but the freedom riders knew that liberty and justice have to be fought for, and I have faith that my generation is no less capable of rising to a challenge. Finally, we take all of the refugees in offshore detention, and we release them into the Queensland wild. Just have them walk around eating unfamiliar food, and embarrassing the natives by speaking English better than they do. If any of the refos survive, and make it over the border back into the 21st century, they'll get automatic citizenship, an OAM, and a plush koala, gift of a grateful nation. At some point in all of the above, the banana vendors will surely rise up, as soon as they work out which end they keep their feet at, get out their blunderbusses and declare war, which we promptly concede. We put up our hands and say, you win. Congratulations. You've successfully seceded. Vive la Queensland. Liberté, égalité, stupidité. And, and we seal off the border for about 20 years. My bet is by the time we peep back in, the Solomon Islands will have been forced to send in peacekeepers. As far as I'm concerned, if they can keep the remnants of the local population halfway honest, they can have the place. Try the mangoes. Sorry about the dead coral. And in the meantime, we can change the country's name again. The Rump of Australia. Sounds about right. There's a nice, beefy ring and I can never resist a bum joke. And with the subtropical subprimates out of the way, we can finally have a real crack at getting the place sorted out.
2: Well, here's the really disappointing thing. Uh, while you're all listening to Nicholas Fryer and I don't know what was he on about, probably penguins or something, um, I was looking back at uh, who might have contributed to the tip pot since the last episode and the answer is only anonymous people, which is really quite sad. Uh, So, if you, no, it's not sad. It's wonderful. So thank you to the people who have contributed. Uh, you know who you are. If you would like to be one of those people, anonymous or uh, not, then stillgarian.com slash tip, and uh, we'll th- I'll, I'll think of a way of uh, spending your money. While I'm uh, plugging things, and no, Jono, I'm not talking about ecstasy, Next week, if you're listening to this now, it is Thursday the 21st of September as I am talking into this microphone in six days' time on Wednesday the 27th. Of September, I will be in Melbourne with my uh, my my good friend Dr. Vanessa Teague, and we will be destroying democracy. And you can come and watch us do that. Actually, a little more seriously, uh, the Victorian Fabians. The Fabians are kind of a a. <laughs> How do you describe them? Um, I'll I'll leave you to look up the Fabian movement yourself. Uh, this is the Victorian branch. It's a political thing. It's all right. It's, it's kind of lefty, but not you know not you know lefties that wash and, and know how to speak in whole sentences. They've they're doing a series of spring talks. Three of them, uh, called Digitization and democracy. And this is the the one in the middle. This one is called digital manipulation of democracy. Now, Vanessa Teague, uh, she is a cryptographer and hacker uh, at the University of Melbourne. She knows a lot about electronic voting systems, and I mean a lot. And me, well, you you, you know me. Uh, I mean, I rant on this podcast, but I actually you know, as you probably do know, write about cyber shit and hacking and privacy and information and big data and all that. Uh, so the two of us are going to, to have a look at uh, how all the new digital things can manipulate uh, democracy from hacking the vote to Russian uh, troll nets to uh, all sorts of things. So that'll be fun. That's next Wednesday, the 27th of September in Victoria, 6 p.m. Uh, and uh, look look it up yourself. Go to fabians.org.au. You'll find all the details. It's in Melbourne, 6 p.m. next Wednesday night. Uh, what else do I need to tell you? Oh, yes, ladies, ladies, know your lemons. It's uh, a brilliantly conceived uh, campaign uh, about breast cancer this year. Uh, go to knowyourlemons.com uh, or knowyourlemons on Twitter. They've got some wonderful graphics using lemons as visual aids uh, so that you know what to, to look for when you're fondling your own breasts. Or, or I suppose other people can look for as they're fondling your breasts. But it's lemons, so it, it doesn't frighten the kitties. Uh, ladies know your lemons. No, that's quite serious. Ah, this reminds me of the other thing. Uh, that came up in my my medical list. It's been quite fun. There was a a spot on my leg that's a little spot, be there, you just see skin spots all over, you know, particularly as you're getting on a bit. And and this one had been there for years, years hadn't changed. And over the last couple of months, it had started kind of increasing in size. So I did what you should do, everyone. Show it to your doctor. I mean, your doctor likes looking at your things. uh, And... And my doctor was happy to look at this. And he went, Yo, I don't know, that's not my specialty. You should go off and go to the skin and cancer hospital and have someone who knows what they're doing look at that. And I did. I did. And a very nice, uh, nice dermatologist chap took one look at that. And he said that's called a, where is it, a traumatised angioma. And if you go to my website, I've got links to what that might look like and i oh, good, I went back to my doctor I'd written, i well well i said uh, it's a a traumatized angioma, and he went, "Oh, you scratched yourself, did you <laughs> thanks, thank you, thank fucking you uh, this is the same doctor who when I first started you know reporting that my neck cracked and whatever he just said yeah yeah you're getting old necks are badly designed they do that sigh oh and one last thing i want to plug uh it's still not ecstasy johnno just just settle down my boy just settle down uh is the wonderful podcast called history hit do listen to it it's it's quite fun but there was an, a a very interesting episode recently which discussed uh, a book which is now being made into a film called Victoria and Abdul turns out queen victoria of great britain and norreia had a servant called abdul as she was in her 60s and abdul was in her 20s um and they they were quite close, and I'm, I'm, I'm not implying anything unsavory here. They, they, he was a servant. They they spent a lot of time together. He taught Queen Victoria Urdu. It turns out she could then not only just write it, she could speak it. And thirteen volumes of Queen Victoria's journals are written in Urdu. Funnily enough, the journals she wrote in English were destroyed. Uh, by other members of the family after she died, but the journals in Urdu survived. And uh, Shribani Basu, who wrote the book Victoria and Abdul, has read all of them, all of the 13 volumes of journals. And it was by writing those journals that uh, Queen Victoria learnt Urdu from Abdul. So that's the book, Victoria and Abdul, and it uh, has been made into a film, a film. Which is out soon. So I will be looking out for that, and I think you should probably look out for that too. (coughs) Elephant Stamp Time! (coughs) Elephant Stamp Time. Each episode of this podcast, when I remember to do it and aren't distracted or run out of time or are too drunk, I present elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category... Of thinking, and I have three to give out what to... three to give out this time. The first uh, is kind of generically uh, to the people of Britain. The reason why is that there is a wonderful Twitter account called Holiday Complain. I suggest you follow it this account. Tweets out the complaints that British tourists have left, uh, either on travel sites or at hotels or tour operators or whatever, when um, when when the holiday hasn't turned out the way they had liked, and and some of them are racist, obviously, uh, but some of them are just clueless. I, I will read you now. Four, one. The holiday brochure never mentioned taking suntan lotion. Number two. The train in Thailand didn't have Yorkshire tea. Number three. This is one of my favourites. It took us nine hours to fly home from Jamaica to England. It took the Americans only three hours to get home. This seems unfair. I suppose it is. Very unfair. And number four. I'm sure I've stayed in this hotel room in a previous life. I cannot stay here again. Holiday Complain is the Twitter account. Uh, Elephant stamp to you. Second elephant stamp goes to Jane, the Keeper of Asia at the British Museum. (laughs) Keeper of Asia, that's a glorious title. Apparently there was um, an inquiry Uh, about the labels on some items in their collection of Asian objects and artefacts. And her reply was, and uh, this is on Twitter, at the British Museum Twitter account, curators write these labels based on their specialist knowledge and they're edited by our interpretation department. We aim to be understandable by 16-year-olds. Sometimes Asian names can be confusing, confusing, so we have to be careful about using too many. Asian names can be confusing, so we have to be careful about using too many. Says the National Museum of the Nation that invented Worcestershire Sauce or Worcester Sauce and Cholmondeley or Chumley. Fucking assets. Third one, and this is, uh, I, look, i thought about this, you know, or not. But really I have to give one to Australian Senator Malcolm Roberts. Now, if you're Australian and you're listening live as as I'm speaking... Uh, I mean, you know that Senator Roberts' reputation for evidential rigor is impeccable. After all, here's, uh, Senator Roberts talking about climate change.
4: I've done a lot of research into the climate, and as I've said before, my, my research is based on entirely and on empirical evidence. That's the fundamental of science. So when I realized that wasn't there, I went looking into the various agencies that have been spreading this and corrupting the climate science. And I started finding out things like about the CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology. That led me then to the UN, which has been driving this. And then I started following the money trails because it's important to understand the motives. And the people who will benefit enormously from the climate scam are the major international banks through their carbon dioxide trading. Now, Al Gore, it's well known, his company, Generation Investment Management, is the fifth largest shareholder on the Chicago Climate Exchange, which is now just about dead. But he was pushing that. Also pushing that were the was the first Secretary General of the United Nations Environmental Program, um, Morris Strong, who has been wanted for other charges, criminal charges in the United States. He's now dead. But uh, those banks will make enormous money. They've said so themselves: trillions, not billions, Michael. Trillions on trading of carbon dioxide credits. For a problem that has been fabricated entirely and does not exist. That's what I mean. Do you believe
2: weather... that last bit was a journalist? You probably didn't hear it, but the next question was: Do you believe in weather? Do you believe weather reports? Okay. I mean, this whole. NASA's science scam is just one of many things that Senator Senator Malcolm Roberts believes uh, are, are important. Uh, he followed up on some of those issues in Senate estimates, a, a Senate Investigative, a investigative Committee, uh, as Americans may may know them. Uh, and some of his questions annoyed the Minister for Science, etc. Senator Arthur Sinodinos.
4: Recently, two people in America at the Portland State University, um, one who's a doctorate in maths and a background in physics, was so alarmed that they published, through a peer review paper, another hoax. And it's called the conceptual penis as a social construct, and in that they claim that uh, penises cause climate change. So the point I'm getting at is that that was published in a social sciences, admittedly paper, but it has credibility because it's been peer reviewed. So I'm very concerned about some of the peer-reviewed papers. So now we've just gone through the actual publishing of a peer-reviewed paper.
0: You've quoted two papers. You've then jumped to a general proposition that this means every peer-reviewed paper no, no, in the no, world no, no, potentially no, Chair, no, is subject no, to not. some sort of potential for fraud. Senator, I mean, I
4: Senator, Deanus, I did not.
0: But this idea that we can jump from two specific, very specific papers to a general proposition about peer-reviewed scientific findings, um,
4: we really are in a very Kafkaesque world. Senator Sinodinos, you're misrepresenting what I said, and I don't know why you're doing that, but that was a misrepresentation. No, that, well, I'm saying there are possibly, what you mean. I'm saying there are possibly holes in the scientific peer-review process, and I'm looking to see how, how CSIRO does it scientifically peer review.
2: I bet you are. I mean, obviously Senator Roberts is the ideal person to review uh, the CSIRO's uh, process for um, peer reviewing papers. Okay, let's jump forward to today. Uh, Where to begin? Okay, Um, yeah, I'm going to have to start with this. Australia's constitution in section 44 lists Things that will disqualify you for becoming a member of parliament or a senator, obviously. Okay, so there's a bunch of things there. And and number one, section 44.1 says that you're disqualified if, un, if uh, under any acknowledgement of allegiance, obedience or adherence to a foreign power or is a subject or citizen entitled to the rights or privileges of a subject or citizen of a foreign power. Now, this is generally interpreted to mean that someone who's a dual citizen, that is of Australia and a citizen of another country as well, cannot serve as a Member of Parliament. This all came into the news a short time ago, weeks, couple of months ago, uh, when uh, Green Senator Scott Ludlam just resigned one afternoon. He discovered, which he didn't realise, he discovered he was also a New Zealand citizen. Uh, So... He resigned on the spot, uh, saying that uh, he'd find another way to cause trouble, which is typical of him. And, and since then, various Australian politicians have discovered that their citizenship status is unclear, shall we say. None of them are from the Labor Party, interestingly, uh, because as uh, Victorian State Member of Parliament, Philip Daladakis, said, the Labor Party has been recruiting ethnics for years. <laughs> we, we, we know how to vet our people and make sure their citizenship is in order. Now, it's all the other parties that have been having trouble, including the National Party uh, and their, the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, Barnaby Joyce uh we're still finding out how his new zealand citizenship pans out now that that is all being looked at in the the high court of australia currently uh which is the highest court in the land americans think the supreme court of the united states because exactly how do we interpret section 44 one of uh the constitution so that all kicked off this week and i'm told that this morning uh folks at the high court were very much looking forward to hearing uh, senator malcolm roberts uh explain uh exactly what his situation was and i was told yes looking forward to the day today in the same way someone enjoys uh putting their dick into a door jam uh Exactly what was happening today... Look, I'll, I'll leave Linda Mottram from ABC Radio's PM program to uh, <laughs> to really explain that.
0: One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts has told the High Court he officially declared he was eligible to run for Parliament before checking whether he still had UK citizenship. Malcolm Roberts says that's because he always believed he was Australian despite being born in India. And he says he didn't read the application to become an Australian citizen that he signed in
3: 1974.
2: (laughs) I'll just sign this piece of paper. This is the kind of person you want as a senator, obviously. Uh, But let's hear the full report. This is uh, ABC journalist George Roberts, who was covering it today. No relation to to Senator Malcolm Roberts. And I'll just play the, the key bit of uh of his interview
3: george has the senator um
0: admitted that he didn't comply well pretty much but it took a long time to get that admission from senator roberts and even then it didn't come easily he repeatedly claimed that he was of the belief always of the belief that he was australian because uh and he put that down to a number of things he says that was because of the way he was brought up the way that his family spoke and because of his father's sense of humor But at the age of 19, the court heard in 1974 he did sign an application to become an Australian citizen. Um, He he signed the form, but he says it was his 16-year-old sister who filled out the form and he never read it. Uh, When he was asked why he would do that, he said uh, if his father told him to sign it, he would have signed it. Uh, And so he says that he subsequently uh, asked his sister what nationality they had been beforehand, and she told him that they were state which is the kind of status uh, that you hear people like refugees and people who don't have a country uh, using. Um, But So he says he still maintains that he'd always believed that he was Australian. So what efforts did he make to check if he had UK citizenship before running for Parliament? Well, it seems he didn't make any efforts. Uh, it wasn't until after he lodged his declaration with the Australian Electoral Commission uh, that he thought perhaps he might have UK or Indian citizenship. He then searched the internet and he found some email addresses on a site called Visa HQ, and he sent an email to one of the to two of those emails um, that was later found not to belong to either the uh, British High Commission or the Consulate. Uh, but he sent an email through saying am i still a uk citizen he never received a reply to that he then wrote another subsequent one uh, about a month later um complaining that he hadn't had a reply uh, and saying that he renounced his citizenship
2: (laughs) i thought i was an australian because of my father's sense of humor senator malcolm roberts is also a qualified engineer Obviously the uh, the high court process uh, has a way to go yet but uh, I suggest we all stay tuned for this one because it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. In America they're worried that their politicians may have been secretly colluding with Russia. In Australia our politicians can't even figure out how to email the UK. Well that's all the edict for now. As usual, there's notes on the podcast webpage at Stilgarion.com. And if you'd like to keep these podcasts going, or if you'd just like to keep me going and ranting on Twitter and all the stuff that I do, throw your oh, entire wallet contents into the tip jar, Stilgarion.com slash tip, stilgarian.com slash tip tip the next episode of the 9pm edict will be whatever i feel like it until then i'm still have a good one
1: The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production, sorry.